Amen. Glad you're here this morning. Take a Bible and find the Old Testament book of Lamentations, chapter 3. You find Jeremiah, you're really close. Jeremiah is a big book. Lamentations is a short book, so that may help you. This is the halfway point in our series, The Character of God. We've spent four weeks talking about who God is and what He's like. This morning, we're going to talk about His faithfulness. We have four more weeks coming. So just to remind you of where we've been and where we're headed, we've talked about God's holiness, His self-existence, His sovereignty, His goodness. This morning, God is faithful as we just sang, and then next month we'll talk about God's power, His patience, His wrath, and His love. I want to start with some wisdom from one of my favorite Southern Baptist theologians. His name is John Dagg, and he said this in his book, Manual of Theology. He said, to understand our duty towards God, we must know His character. It is not enough to believe that He exists but we should labor to acquire a knowledge of him. Let us then reverently inquire who is the Lord. I like that quote because he reminds us that as creatures, we have a duty, we have a responsibility to the creator. We've talked about this in previous weeks, recent weeks. We are not autonomous beings. We do not rule ourselves. Rather, we live under the rule and the reign of God. We have a duty to him, a responsibility to him, an obligation to him. And if we're going to fulfill all of those things, we have to know him. And he points out, I think this is vitally important for us to hear today, it's not enough just to believe that there is a God. Millions of people across our country would raise their hand to that question. Do you believe that there's a God, there's a divine being, there's a higher power? Hands would go up all across the nation. But then when you start to to focus in, to drill down deep and to say, well, what's he like? Who is he? Tell me about his character. Uh, Opinions would vary and responses would vary. And our responsibility in knowing God is to know him as he reveals himself to us. And so we reverently ask, coming to the scriptures, who is God? And this morning we talk about the idea that he is faithful. God is faithful. Here's a basic definition to get us rolling. Faithfulness defined. God's faithfulness is the attribute of God that makes him true, number one, to himself. True, number two, to his promises. And true, number three, to his people. When we say that God is faithful, we're saying all of that. He is true to himself. He never acts out of character. Have you ever had to issue some sort of apology, either publicly or just personally to somebody, and you said something like, uh, that, that wasn't me, uh, that was not, I was acting out of character. Sometimes people say that and you really wonder, was that out of character or was that your character? But sometimes you do things or you say things that are not who you are most of the time. God never does that. He is always true to his character. He's always true to his promises. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. He never breaks his word, and he's always true to his people. You've had the experience with folks in your life who were not loyal to you or who betrayed you or maybe who spoke behind your back in some way. God never does that. He is always true to himself. 
He's always true to his promises. He's always true to his, his, his people. And all of those things are intertwined. They're, they're all related together. You can't really separate one from the other. It's just all one big ball of faithfulness. David says it like this in Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. He's thinking about God's character And he's thinking, what are the biggest things out there that I could compare God and his attributes to? What what are the most grand, spectacular things that I could use as a a reference point? And so he says, God, your love, it's not a small love. It reaches all the way up to the heavens. And your faithfulness, it goes all the way to the clouds. It's expansive. It's big. He says, God, your righteousness is like the mountains, just awesome and unmoving. Your judgments are like the great deep, and he's talking about the oceans, the depths of the sea. Your judgments, they are deep and they are true, and they're frightening. We're talking about faithfulness, and what David is trying to say and what we need to hear is, God's not just a little faithful, God's not just sometimes faithful. God's not faithful only on good days where he wakes up on the right side of the bed. He's really and truly and always faithful. He's true to his character. He's true to his promises. And he's true to his people. Now, let's add to that. Let's say a few more things before we move on. Let's talk about God's inherent faithfulness. His inherent faithfulness refers to his immutability. There's your vocabulary word for the day. God is immutable. We're talking about God and his immutability. Basically, that means he doesn't change. He does not change. So I want you to think back to last week. If you were here, we were talking about the goodness of God. We read from the book of Psalms, chapter 119, and we read that God is inherently good and expressively good. He is good, his inherent goodness, and he does good. That's his expressive goodness. You can make the same distinction as you think about faithfulness. God is inherently good, and theologians call that his immutability. He does not change. We change in lots of different ways. We're a month into the new year. Some of you have changed since the end of December. You've been on a diet. You've been exercising. You've been doing whatever. There's less of you here this morning than there was a month ago. You've changed, but now we're a month into the year. And for some of you, we're going to check in at the end of February, and we're going to say, you're all back. We're glad you're here, too. We change. We learn things, and we forget things. Some of you, this little row that was up here at the front a minute ago, they're in the category of life, the stage of life, where they are learning more than they're forgetting. I mean, they're just soaking it all in. It's just like a sponge. Some of you are like a sponge being squeezed, and you're forgetting more than you're learning. But either way, you change. You have new experiences in life. 
you find yourself in different circumstances and you maybe wake up one day and you say, you know, I've never, never gone through this before. I've never felt this way before. I've never thought this before. I've never found myself in this predicament before. Uh, those are all new things and you go through new things and it changes you. We change. I, I was reminded this week of me and my childhood and how picky of an eater I was. We had a friend come over and she was a picky eater and I just, my heart went out to her because I was a picky eater. When I was a kid, I ate three things for most of my growing up years. Macaroni and cheese, chicken nuggets, peanut butter jelly, no crust. That's it. That was my diet when I went off the bottle up to about high school years. That's what I ate. So if you want to grow up and be 6'4 when you're an adult, that's what you eat. Macaroni and cheese, chicken nuggets, peanut butter and jelly. That was all I would eat. That's all I liked. But my tastes have changed. And we're going to have a lunch in just a minute for our greeters and our ushers and their families. We're going to say thank you to them. And we're having nachos. Look, when I was a kid, I would have gone to that lunch and I would have just maybe nibbled on a plain chip. That's about it. But I'm going to pile it on. I want all of it. I want the meat and I want the veggies and I want the queso and the salsa. I want all of that stuff. We change. You and I change in lots of different ways. God doesn't change. He doesn't learn things or forget things. He knows all things. He doesn't find himself in sort of unforeseen circumstances where he really doesn't know what to do saying, you know, I never thought I'd find myself here. How am I going to handle this? He doesn't change. He is inherently faithful. Look how the Bible describes it in Numbers 23. God is not a man. And the point is to say he's not a human. He is not like us that he should lie. He's not like a son of man that he should change his mind. He doesn't change. He's always true to his character, always true to his promises, always true to his people. The last half of the verse talks about his expressive faithfulness. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he won't fulfill it? Look, if he says it, he's going to do it. Because he's inherently faithful, God's people believe and have confidence that he is expressively faithful. And when we talk about God's expressive faithfulness, we're talking about his covenants, the promises that he makes to his people. He is true to himself. That's his inherent faithfulness. He's also true to his people and his promises. That's his expressive faithfulness. He always keeps his word. If he says he'll do it, he'll do it. And I don't mean he'll do it like the husband watching football on a Saturday and the wife saying, hey, honey, what about that list of stuff? Remember you said you were going to do all these things and, and the husband sort of growls back and says, six months ago I told you I'll do it. I'll do it when I do it. I mean, you don't need to keep reminding me. I'll do it. God's not like that. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He's not a procrastinator. When he says he'll do it, he'll do it. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise. He's loyal to his people. He always keeps his covenants. He never breaks them. So we're talking about God's faithfulness. He is inherently faithful. 
He is expressively faithful. Moses describes it in Deuteronomy 7, 9. He's talking to a new generation. The Exodus generation has died out. A new generation is about to go into the promised land. Moses wants them to know the truth about God, and he says, Know therefore, know this, that the Lord your God, Yahweh, your God, is God. This is the true God, not Baal, not Asherah, not Ra, not Chemosh, not Molech, not any of the other gods. Yahweh the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is faithful. You and I live in a day and age where faithfulness is in short supply. Just not a lot of great examples that I can give you in sort of culture to say, this is what faithfulness looks like that might help us understand what we're talking about when we talk about God's faithfulness. Politics today, there's not a lot of faithfulness. In the business world, employers and employees, many times there's not a lot of faithfulness. On the family level, in our day and age, you see too little faithfulness. There's shining examples every now and then that we should celebrate and point to and and emulate and, and try to pattern ourselves after, but they're becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. Social media, like it does most things, makes it all worse. Social media, as we have relationships with each other on a digital level, it makes it easier than ever for us to be unfaithful. It's so easy to just get on, to type a post, and to say something that you would never say to somebody else's face, whether you tag them or name them or you don't. It's never been easier to say, I I don't want to friend you. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to pay attention to you. I just want you out of my life and I want to forget about you. Never before has it been easier to be unfaithful in just our interpersonal relationships. So we find ourselves in a day and age, we look around and we say, how are we going to understand faithfulness? Where are we going to see it? Where are we going to look and say, that's it. That's what it looks like. It's hard for us to do that. And when we come to this attribute of God, we have to wrestle a little bit extra with it to say, where do we come to terms with what it means when we say that God is faithful? I want you to understand we're not the first people to have that problem. In fact, the exiles who were kicked out of the promised land found themselves in a very, very similar situation. They found themselves in a situation in life where they looked around and they said, I'm not sure that I understand what it means that God is faithful when we have been kicked out of the promised land and we no longer enjoy the presence of God with his people. And some of you say, I know exactly what you're talking about. You've read the Old Testament. You can piece all the timeline together. Some of you say, I don't know who these exiles are and I don't know what you're talking about. So I just want to walk with you through the history of Israel. We'll do this quickly, and we're only going to hit the high points. I just want you to see how tragic it was that these people ended up being sent into exile. 
then we're going to read Lamentations. The history of Israel begins where all good stories begin in the beginning. It begins with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, living with God and enjoying His presence. They weren't there long before they rebel against God. They defy their Creator. And the consequence, among other things, is they had to leave. You cannot stay. You no longer get to enjoy the presence of God. Literally, they were exiled from God's presence and driven out from the presence of the Lord. There were a few exceptions of of people who sought the Lord, people like Enoch and people like Noah. But for the most part, Genesis 6-5 describes the situation. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was humanity apart from God's grace, living in exile from his presence. One day, God decided to change that, and he decided to change it by initiating, God initiated a relationship with a man named Abram, who later was known as Abraham. God made promises to Abraham, and one of the most important promises he told him is, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you a land, and we're going to be together. I'm going to give you a place where we can be together once again. And all of those promises to Abraham got passed down to his son Isaac, and all of those promises to Isaac got passed down to Jacob. All of those promises to Jacob got passed down to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they found themselves enslaved in Egypt hundreds of years later, God came. He was faithful. He didn't forget, and he did exactly what he said he would do. He brought them out of slavery. Not only did he bring them out of slavery in Egypt, but he entered into a special relationship with them. He made a covenant with them. He made promises to these people. And he gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And he said, this is who I want you to be. This is what I want you to look like as a nation. He's faithful. He's always faithful. The people were not always faithful. They kind of stumble along and Moses brings them right up to the edge of the promised land, but then Moses dies. Joshua brings them into the promised land, and Joshua wins all of these battles. And there's parts of Joshua that are difficult to read, but you can't miss how important the book of Joshua is. God has kept his promise. The one he made to to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the tribes, he's brought them into a land, the promised land, And he's with them. He says, I'm with you. And all of God's people are thinking back and they're saying, it's like back in the garden. It's like we're getting a second chance. Adam and Eve were in the presence of God. Now we get to live in the presence of God. And you think it's just going to be happily ever after. Then you read the book of Judges. And it's not happy at all. They bumble around and fumble around. They establish a monarchy at some point, and it goes in the tank immediately. Finally, there's a guy named David who sort of unites the people, and they're, they're trusting the Lord. They're following the Lord. They're together as a nation under David. And you think, okay, this is it. They're in the land, and they're about to build a temple. And when you read about that temple, you say it sounds an awful lot like the Garden of Eden. There's trees, and there's fruit, and there's cherubim and angels It's the presence of the Lord. And you say, this is it. 
This is what they've been waiting for. God is keeping his promise. By the time David's grandson is on the throne, the kingdom is split in half and they're in a civil war. The northern kingdom, the northern tribes, known as Israel, they get sent into exile. They just plunge into idolatry and God eventually sends the Assyrians and they're kicked out of the land. Again, there's an exile. I brought you into this land to enjoy my presence and then God just kicks them out. He says you can't stay. Judah fared just slightly better. They hung on a little bit longer, but they plunge into idolatry, and eventually God sends a nation to Babylon, and he kicks them out of the land. They're all kicked out. Everybody's exiled. It's Eden all over again. On the small scale, it's hard for you and I to imagine what it would be like to be exiled. We live in the most powerful nation on the planet without question. It is a difficult thought exercise for most of us to think what would it be like if we were conquered by another nation and kicked out of our home, not just our home civically, but our home religiously. It's hard for us to think about the horror of that. It's hard for us to think about the horror of armies attacking your city. It's hard to think about foreign armies invading and trampling the most sacred holy places in your society. It's hard to think about what it would be like for an invading army literally to kill most of your family and uproot you and take you to a place where you didn't know the language, you didn't like the food, you didn't know the customs or the culture. It's hard to think about the horror of that. That's what God's people went through. On a big scale, don't forget what was lost. What was lost when these armies invaded and the temple was destroyed and the people were kicked out of the promised land is the presence of God. God's people are once again living in exile. That's where we meet a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. Jeremiah wrote a long book called Jeremiah. He also wrote a short book called Lamentations. Book of Lamentations is five chapters. We call it Lamentations because it is a lament. You need to know that the book is structured as a chiasm. This is the way Hebrews love to write poetry, and a chiasm works like this. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, they're all there. The first chapter, chapter 1, basically says the same thing as chapter 5. They line up. The content is very, very similar. Then it builds. Chapter 2 basically says the same thing as chapter 4. Again, the content lines up, and there's a parallel there. And then you get to the middle chapter. This can be done with a five-chapter book or a much, much larger book. The middle chapter is the key chapter. That's what the book really drives to. We tend to not write poetry this way. We tend to write poetry and stories, and we build all the way to the end. The Hebrews didn't do that. They built in the middle. They built up to it, and then they came down from it. Jeremiah makes it really clear with the chiasm that chapter 3 is the focus. And if you miss the chiasm, he gives you another clue. Chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5 each have 22 verses. Chapter 3 is three times longer. It has 66 verses. So he's saying to you, don't miss this part of the story. Chapter 1 is important. Chapter 2 is important. Chapter 4 is important. Chapter 5 is important. But chapter 3 is the heart of what he's trying to say. 
And what Jeremiah is saying, he's saying to people who are living in exile, who have been kicked out of the promised land and they no longer enjoy the presence of God and they look around and they say, I'm not so sure that I can accept it when you tell me that God is faithful. Take your Bible, look at Jeremiah 3. Let's read verse 19 to 24. This is what the prophet says. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. Remember, they're exiles. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Here's the takeaway from the heart of Jeremiah's book, Lamentations. The faithfulness of God gives hope to those in affliction. God is faithful. He's true to himself, always. True to his promises, always. True to his people, always. And because that's true, you and I know hope in the midst of affliction. Notice, Jeremiah does not say that because God is faithful, you will never face affliction. He does not say because God is faithful, your life will always be easy and comfortable and pleasant. In fact, as we'll see in just a minute, the fact that God is faithful to who he is and to his promises might make your life very difficult in different seasons. But he always is true to his character. He's always true to his word. He's always true to his people. And the result is we have hope. Hope in the midst of affliction. You may or may not know this. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. The weeping prophet. When he wrote the book of Lamentations, we don't have the original copy, but I wouldn't be surprised if he wrote it on tear-stained pages. Thinking about all that had happened to God's people, thinking about the horror of the exile, thinking about all that they had been through, the wormwood, the gall, the affliction, the wandering, his soul being bowed down. And in the midst of that affliction, he says, but, but, I have hope. I have hope. Because your love never ceases, your mercies don't come to an end, and your faithfulness is great. Listen, the faithfulness of God changed Jeremiah in the way that he thought about his situation. The faithfulness of God ought to change you and I in the way that we think about our lives. I love this quote from A.W. Pink. He says, it's one thing to accept the faithfulness of God as divine truth. It is quite another to act upon it. It's easy to gather together in this room and we sang 
Never once have you left us. You are faithful. You are faithful. God, you're faithful. We're going to sing a, a hymn about God's faithfulness in a minute. It's easy to fill in blanks on an outline about faithfulness and listen to a talk about faithfulness. It's another thing entirely to do something about it. And it did not stop Jeremiah from weeping, but it did give him hope. How should it change us? What should change about you and I because God is faithful? What should we believe in light of God's faithfulness? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, God is faithful to punish his enemies. And I don't know if you expected that to be on the list or not, but it belongs on the list. God is faithful to punish his enemies. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. You look at that and you say, that's really good news. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people quote that verse as if it is good news for the faithless person. Well, that's nice. If I'm faithless, God's going to be faithful. And the obvious implication in how many people quote the verse is it's all going to be fine in the end. How many of you remember the movie The Princess Bride? You remember Mr. Inigo Montoya? And you remember the part of the movie where he says this? He says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay? People keep quoting this verse, I don't think it means what they think it means. I want to back up off the verse we just read, the verse so many people quote, If we're faithless, he remains faithful. You can turn away from the Lord. You can abandon the Lord. You can walk away from the Lord. You can be a complete apostate. It's okay. He's faithful. Don't worry about it. I don't think that's what it means. There's a poem when Paul is writing to Timothy. There's four lines total in the poem. The first two lines go together, and the last two lines go together. And he's using a a poetic form, very common in the book of Psalms. Scholars call it parallelism. The first line and the second line say the same thing in a different way. But they have the same idea. If we've died with him, with Jesus, we'll live with him. Die to yourself, live with Jesus. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If you keep dying daily with Jesus then you reign with him. It's the same idea, slightly different, but really the same concept being talked about. Follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, turn from sin, live to follow Jesus. There's good news. Now look at the next two lines. They also go together, and they say the same thing in a different way. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus says that in the Gospels. If you deny me before men, I deny you before my Father. You don't get a free pass into heaven just because you know the secret speakeasy word, Jesus. That's not how it works. You deny me, I deny you. Then he says the same thing a different way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Faithful to his character. And his character is not to overlook faithlessness or sin. Faithful to his promise. He promises to punish sin. And to set all things right, not to overlook sin and sweep it under the rug. We quote this verse 
we quote it as if it's gospel hope. It's a gospel warning. God, because he's faithful, will punish his enemies. Now let's talk about his people. What should change about what we believe? Secondly, God is faithful to preserve his people. He will preserve his people. He will not let them go. He will not forget about them. They will not slip through the cracks. He will preserve them, even in suffering. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 4.19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That can't be right. You and I might suffer, and it might be God's will that we suffer. That's what Peter says. And in the midst of that suffering, Peter says, this is what you do. Trust. You entrust your soul to God, the Creator, who is faithful. You trust Him. And while you're trusting Him, you do good. That's what God required of these people that Peter was writing to who were suffering. And it wasn't hypothetical suffering. It was real suffering. They had been displaced. They had been kicked out of their homes. They had been persecuted for their faith. They had faced the hardness of life in a fallen world. And Peter says, look, none of this is outside of God's will for you. You're suffering according to God's will. The plan has not been derailed. While you suffer, trust God. Trust him. He's faithful. Hang on to that and do good. God will preserve you through your suffering. Thirdly, God is faithful to discipline his people. Faithful to discipline his people. We'll read another counterintuitive verse from Psalm 119. The psalmist says, I know, O Lord, excuse my typo, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In your faithfulness, God, you brought affliction into my life. When I read that verse, I think about David. And I think about the season of David's life where he has fallen into sin with Bathsheba and it's resulted in a hundred other sins. And when you read that story, about a year goes by and nothing really happens. Outwardly, it looks like David got away with the whole thing. I mean, scot-free. It looks like he just skated through and nothing happened. It was easy peasy. But David, as he looks back on it later in life, he lets you in on a little secret. The secret is Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, David says this, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones were wasting away. I felt like I had bone cancer and I was being crushed from the inside. And he makes it very clear. He says, I felt like my bones were wasting away because, for the hand of the Lord was heavy on me. He wasn't happy. All that sin and mess and wickedness looked like he got away with it. It didn't make him happy. It didn't make his life better. He was miserable. Why? Because God's hand was heavy on his life. He felt like his bones were wasting away. He really was one of God's people and God was disciplining David. You always couldn't see it from the outside, but it was happening on the inside. Look, the author of Hebrews says the same thing. It says, God is like a father with his children. 
Just like a good father disciplines his children when they go astray, if you are truly a child of God, he will discipline you when you go astray. His hand will be heavy on you. You'll feel that affliction. And at some point, you'll turn around like the psalmist and you'll say, God, you were faithful to afflict me. Thank you for that that rottenness that entered my bones. Thank you for that feeling of just being crushed when I was not confessing my sin. He's faithful to discipline his people. One last thought, God is faithful to glorify his people. He will glorify his people. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 These people in Thessalonica were terrified. They thought they missed the whole thing. They thought Jesus came back and didn't take them with him. They thought the the second coming had happened, and they didn't know it. Nobody called them. They didn't get the memo. They didn't get the Facebook notification. They completely missed it, and they were terrified. Paul says this, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctification is a process. Paul says he's going to finish that process. He's not going to leave you as a work in progress. He's going to sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You didn't miss it. You haven't missed anything. He didn't forget to call you. He didn't leave you behind on accident. You're not going to be left out. Why? He who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it. He will glorify his people. No man left behind. No woman falling through the cracks. No unknown believer being left out. He will sanctify you completely because he's faithful. He will do it. We take all of this in. Promise about judgment for his enemies. Promise that he will preserve and discipline and glorify his people. What do we do with all of that? How do we walk away? It's one thing to believe it is divine truth. It's another thing to let it change us. Hunter read earlier from Hebrews 10. This is what we do. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is true to his character. He's true to his promise. And he's true to his people. I want to pray for you as we close.